Hello, welcome to this episode of Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Alex Thomas, today's podcast host. To lose one by-election is a misfortune, two is careless, but three on the same night would have meant finding a different Oscar Wilde cliché. So Rishi Sunak avoided the hat-trick, but is he in the gutter after a bruising evening for the Conservatives who lost Selby and Somerton and Froome, or looking at the stars, given they held Uxbridge, Boris Johnson's old London seat, by just a few hundred votes? How much should we read into last night's results? Is this just the case of the electorate administering a bloody nose, or Tory voters not turning out, or is the Conservative Party now mortally injured? And what do the votes tell us about Labour's prospects, the hopes of the Liberal Democrats, and the chance of tactical voting playing a big part. Can Rishi Sunak be confident that he's on course to meet his five pledges? And should Keir Starmer be happy that his five missions are capturing the imagination? And then we'll scan the horizon for what might come next. There's party conferences, a King's speech, maybe more by-elections if the lingering member from Mid-Bedfordshire, as one of her Conservative colleagues called Nadine Doris, ever actually resigns. We'll take a look at what might happen next. To explore these questions and more, I'm joined by two IFG colleagues who will have lost count of the amount of by-elections they've enjoyed or endured, and that's IFG Senior Fellow Giles Wilkes and Programme Director Kath Haddon. Hello both. Good morning, Alex. Hi. Kath, I know you were up overnight because we were WhatsApping at four o'clock in the morning. Was that an early start or a late finish? Uh, It was an early start and it wasn't intentional. I just woke up thought, I'll just turn on the telly and see what's happening. And it was just as the Selby uh, by-election was announced uh, as a Labour victory. So I went from that and then looked at the other um, votes and saw what had happened in Uxbridge uh, and in Somerton and Froome. And Charles, what's your election night strategy? Mine is normally to uh, try to sleep through it. And then, and then just sort of pray as I wake up, I don't hear something absolutely appalling, like Donald Trump's doing surprisingly well. Or And um, this morning, the first thing I heard, literally, as the radio came on was, and now we're going to hear from the new Tory MP for, and I thought, oh my goodness, it's different from what we expected. So normally, yeah, I, I can't really bear to sit through it. The last time I did was 2017, when I was in Downing Street and thought I was just watching the colours changing in such a way that my career was going to be about five months long. So I think I'm a bad news uh, <laughs> mascot now. And I'm delighted to be joined throughout by Will Jennings, who's Professor of Political Science and Public Policy at the University of Southampton. Will, how would you rate these elections on the political sleep deprivation level? Oh, well, they're normally pretty high. And, no- and normally I tell myself that I'm going to get to bed early and wake up wake up at a good time and get a good sleep. But then I, you know, you, you wait for the results. And you think there'll be a declaration in half an hour. And so I end up normally getting about two hours sleep, which is um, not really very sustainable. Yeah, it's not normal, is it? But we do enjoy it. Anyway, let's start with the by-elections. Will, what's the story of the night? I think it's a sort of mixed story, really. Obviously, I think the result in Uxbridge, although on one on one hand you you could have said it wasn't completely out of the blue, that we we had a sense that actually Labour weren't going to do as well there, ironically, as in in, in Selby and Ainsty, where that you know the, the ask was much bigger. So I think there's a little bit of everything on the night. There's obviously um, Dan and Somerton and Froome, a great great result again for the Lib Dems, who this Parliament have been you know notching off these huge um, swings. Against against the government, you know, really, even by their standards, a sort of the by 
by-election monsters of British politics. Really impressive. Labour had this result in Selby, which actually, by comparison of you know historically of their by-election performances, was a really strong performance, and and sort of speaks to the fact that actually maybe the party's going to be able to get back into parts of the north north of England that it had lost in in 2019, and then Uxbridge, sort of the outer London, where actually I think I think people often get a little bit confused about outer London. They sort of treat it either as inner London or the the southern sprawling south, and it is is somewhere with a distinct geography, and so that gives the Conservatives a little bit of a, a slither of hope for next year about you know if they're if there's the right wedge issue with the right sort of campaign maybe maybe all is not lost so i think a little bit of everyone and how would you place them historically i heard um i heard jacob rees mogg on the today program uh, this morning making the case for this being 1992 when john major won back lots of elections uh lots of by-elections he'd lost rather than 1997 when he didn't how would how would you put it in a historical context Oh well, I mean, I, to be honest, I, I, I'm I'm a little bit of an anti of all these sorts of historical analogies. Of is it ninety two? Is it ninety seven? I I think you have to put everything in. If you're going to use those analogies, you have to sort of deconstruct, right? And actually, the the ninety two situation was very different. You had actually a, a relatively more popular prime minister versus a relatively unpopular opposition leader. You had uh, you know an economic situation that wasn't as bad. Um, and actually, I, I think the sort of the pre ninety two results weren't really on, on that sort of scale, and we weren't facing quite that level of anti-incumbent strategic anti you know kind of tactical voting that we're seeing now and so um, I, I also don't like think saying that well if, if it's if it's not 92 then it must be 97 I, I think we're in a very different context um, but I I think signs last night for the government should be very worrying the the extent to which voters were um, mobilizing just amongst themselves tactically um, that depth of that anti anti-government vote that should be a concern beyond I think what was being seen ahead of 1992 yeah, I was going to ask you about tactical voting, uh, actually, because we saw I mean, we saw at the local elections as well. It took a while for the story to sort of filter through to the, the media. But it does. This does feel like a consolidation of that tactical voting. Is that is that right? And do you think um, there, there, there are a few Conservatives holding on to the fact that Labour had done badly in, in one constituency and the Lib Dems in another? But actually, that seems like pretty grim news for them. No, and it's quite an interesting dynamic that I think potentially in the last last fifteen years or, or, or so we we haven't seen as much. But actually, voters seem to know where to go to give the government a kicking. So we saw Labour's vote fall down in Somerton and uh, and up in Selby Lib Dem vote, you know, very very small. Um, and so voters actually seem to have a, a greater sense. I think it's always an, an interesting feature of. of well, general elections in, a, in, in, in constituencies, but also by-elections, that voters have a pretty good sense of what, need, what needs to be done um, if they're, they're not they're not very happy with the government. And so, yeah, I, I don't think that's a positive story at all for the government if voters are, are deciding, actually, do you know what? It's time for a change because that suggests that, um, you know, Labour's vote for uh, geographically has been very inefficient the last few years. It's sort of, it's built up in large majorities in major cities, university towns, um, done poorly in in marginal constituencies um if voters in those places are suddenly deciding actually we're going to vote tactically and we're going to look for the second uh second you know the second placed um opponent to the the government that that i think is it should be a concern and uh here's a quick curveball for you that we were just talking about before you joined um might boris johnson have won uxbridge if he'd stood 
No, I mean, I, I actually think, uh, you know, uh, I think he did the the, the, the government, uh, ironically, a great favour by resigning because I think that what we saw from the campaign, and I think there's still a little bit of debate, but the, the debate about ULEZ seems to really um, play to the Conservatives' local campaign. Um, had Boris Johnson been standing, I think the tone and the content of the campaign would have been very different. It would have been about his conduct. Um, I think that would have um, seen a different outcome, bluntly. I, I think, it, you know, given it was a very narrow win for the Conservatives. I think there's almost no question that a very different campaign would not have delivered a win to the Conservatives. Giles, everyone, as Will was just saying there, seems to agree that it was the ultra-low emission zone what won it. It was a big local factor in the, the London win for the Tories. Is, is ULES unique or do you think this is actually going to change climate, energy, net zero environment policy now? I, I think it's probably unique. I mean, if you, if you examine the demographics of the um, the area, as I believe our former colleague Tom Sass has for the Economist, this is a almost a uniquely wicked constituency to have the Euler's issue. Really high amount of car ownership, and it coming newly into the into the system. So, and this sort of thing really cuts through in a in a period of cost of living crisis. Even if you're not in fact likely to own one of these cars, and most people m- might not. I mean, an awful lot of cars don't count for the new charges because they count as sufficiently low emission. Even if you do, it's really unnerving to find that you might be having bills coming out of nowhere. The Westminster elite finds it too easy to forget that a lot of people are just in a very precarious financial position. They can get through. What they can't take is a shock. And ULEZ just sounds like a shock. And so I think it would have been a really... uh, It's clearly the issue that determined this outcome. As I think I heard Andrew Cooper saying on another podcast a couple of days ago, he was David Cameron's pollster, there's virtually no by-election where the Conservatives would be safe right now. You literally couldn't find a, a seat where they could be confident of holding their 2019 majority. So it does take something really extraordinary for them to hold on to any seat. And what is the really extraordinary feature here? It's not, as Nadine Dory seems to think, residual affection for Boris Johnson, even though he didn't turn up. It's this incredibly penetrative policy so yeah definitely ULEZ. Yeah and are there lessons for how you communicate environment policy from from ULEZ? Wow the problem with environment policy the really frustrating thing is the benefits of doing something about it are often really really diffuse. I mean particularly when we're just talking about carbon when people say oh we need to save the world really really quickly and start, start, start insulating your house and putting in a heat pump and this sort of thing the truth is and economists are always worrying about this the benefits go to the entire globe and the cost is coming straight to you so that's the the real problem now the good news about this this sort of policy is people are directly affected by pollution air pollution diesel particulate matter it kills people. This is why I believe the mayor is doing it. It's why the former mayor, Boris Johnson, supported it. It's why I think it's the government's policy to want to have much less emitting cars. But that aspect just wasn't brought through to people that, you know what, your kids are suffering. Your your lungs are going to be in a worse case condition because of this. It's going to be painful, but we can get it get you through it. They could have certainly done a lot better. Um, I'm already in an ULEZ zone here in zone two. So it's something that we, we kind of just swallowed here. So, yeah, they clearly could have done it better. And I think they probably could have identified those relatively small number of losers and smoothed the path for them a little better. Kev? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a few communication and sort of timing issues that uh, people will consider in in terms of uh, particularly these kinds of policies. 
Um, you know, clearly the frustration and, and the worry about the timing of it and so forth and, and all the factors of, of Uxbridge and, and how people feel about their cars. ULES would have affected, I think somebody said it was like 10% of cars because there are only particular categories. And there's loads of people talking about my car isn't covered for these reasons, that reason, whatever. So there's something about that. There's something about the degree to which it's been pushed out. From a party political point of view, it's obviously very much seen as the policy of the Labour mayor, Sadiq uh, Khan. But at the same time, there's a letter doing the rounds showing that it was the Conservative government that said to him, you know, in order to sort of offset some of the costs they'd had to deal with over COVID, that this now needed to be pushed out as an emergency. So there's also a a financial aspect to it as well. so I do think there are some reflections can, can be taken away. But going to that point about sort of wider environment and so forth, there's so many issues on the environment. We've seen in the last year our rivers have been a particular issue. Um, you know, speaking to family of mine who live in Suffolk, that's a huge issue there. That's where the current environment secretary, Therese Coffey, uh, has her constituency and, you know, is getting a lot of flack over it. So conservatives are also vulnerable on other environment issues where the public very much feel that, um, you know, it is impacting on them and not just the wider world. So it's a a mixed bag, really. Yeah, really good point that the environment is likely to be a vote loser rather than a vote winner for the, for the government. I, just, to, just to give Somerset and Froome a little bit of airtime, um, back to you, Giles, you're our Lib Dem whisperer. Um, is, this, um, is this voters uniting behind an Ed Davey uh, leadership? Um, is, he, is he winning people over or was it just anti, anti-conservative? Well, I did manage to make it out to Somerset and Froome. As you know, the Institute for Government maintains a scrupulously party um, political neutral position for its, um, its staff. But... Um, uh, what I understand is obviously it was, it was historically a very Lib Demi kind of area. They they had fantastic success in the Tiverton by election before. I think that was the one caused by that tractor gate scandal. So voters kind of knew if you don't like the Conservatives, there's a, only one party to go for, which is immensely useful because it might as well it might be an anti-Conservative vote as much as a pro a, a pro Lib Dem one. I also think the circumstances of that particular seat with the um, the MP resigning with a particularly um, florid scandal all over the newspapers makes it extremely easy to cut through. Some of the MPs I've known there who have managed to buck the trend and um, and beat Conservatives have managed to do so by just highlighting a particular piece of sort of sleazy behaviour. I think people like Tessa Munt out in Wells, if I remember rightly, used to say, Munt, not manure, because the other guy who cloned for manure on his expenses form. So I think they're brilliant at that. Uh, and I think the Lib Dems, since the experience of the coalition, have become much more ruthless in this kind of way. They don't think at every time when we're campaigning locally, we need to also have a totally coherent national platform. We just need to get through to people and say, you're going to get a voice from us. So what's really interesting to me is, will this translate into a general election? Yeah. And my suspicion is it might well do because that anti-conservative sentiment is still going to be strong. The question in the next election is, do you want to keep this lot or get rid of them? And they now know that they're the people to get rid of them. Yeah. Um, Will, what do you think about that general election point? Well, I mean, I think this is a very interesting feature of what the Lib Dems are doing at the moment, which is that they're they're picking up these huge swings when actually the national polling is sort of very, very kind of stable. It's a little bit above where they where they have been, you know, kind of in the last few years. So they're doing a little bit better, but you know, the swings are so disproportionately large. And I, and I think that point that points to that strategic 
you know, question about that anti anti incumbent feeling that the Lib Dems are going back a little bit. They're certainly nowhere near where they were in the two thousands, but they're they're getting much more effective um, at mobilising that in anti incumbent vote. And I think that's actually that's going to be very useful for um, Labour as it sort of as it tries to you know kind of knock, knock the Conservatives out of office because it will it will present it will it will allow Labour to focus on the most competitive seats and leave the Lib Dems to really um, make the the Conservatives fight for those seats as well, right? So it's sort of it's a little bit when you're thinking about how you you know deploy your resources on the chessboard. Actually, the Lib Dems doing well is actually really helpful to Labour. And you know, as Joel's saying, sort of I think there is a feeling that Lib Dems has really got back in the game. And you know, under Ed Davey, I mean, I think we shouldn't discount the fact that actually the the sort of moving of moving away from Brexit is actually helping the, the Lib Dems because ironically, although we had ahead of 2019, the, the Lib Dems at one point had this ambition and this sort of belief that they would be um, you know the largest party in this sort of new political alignment which all you know fell away hugely but I think it actually has allowed them to mobilize a much more cross-cutting um, coalition of voters that they'll you know at local elections we saw there's some of these places that at one point voted like Lib Dem then went UK then went Brexit party you know going back to to Lib Dem so that speaks to that sort of ideological incoherence that the Lib Dems are actually so effective at mobilizing locally. Kath, I'm interested in your take on what this means for the fallout for government. And um, mm. again, I mentioned Rhys Mogg on the on the radio earlier. I was struck that he was professing loyalty to Rishi Sunak and the leadership. Now is the time for Conservatives to unite. I wonder if if Sunak has almost been a bit lucky in that um, uh, he's got the right mix of frightening backbenchers with the, the bad results, but giving them a sliver of hope with the Uxbridge squeaking a win. Do you think? Do you think the uh, governing party is going to be able to unite around this or not? Uh, I, I mean, you know, we've been saying that for years. Are they going to be able to unite? Ever <laughs> since 2019, it, it feels like it's been a, a theme. I mean, the, the the point is, whenever you get uh, by-elections, local elections, whatever, you have two kind of framing exercises that happen afterwards. One is people like Will or the experts sort of saying, what does this actually mean? What can we actually take from it? Um, And then there is the parties themselves. And with that, it's both how they want to frame it and also what it then leaves them with in terms of internal discussions about should they adjust, should they stick or twist with the the policy. It definitely leaves a bit more of a window for Rishi Sunak to say, come on, guys, let's all bandy together and maybe, you know, maybe we can make a push at this, maybe... Uh, there's some vulnerability, all is not lost type thing. But it's also going to leave them with loads of question marks about what is the right strategy. And I think this is also a lesson from having all three of these at the same time. I mean, yes, the Lib Dems were able to really throw resources at Somerton and Froome um, and having very little Labour sort of opposition to, to challenge them there helped with that. And obviously the fact that that voters are voting tactically. But then you look at, you know, Labour obviously fighting two by-elections at the same time. But the the Uxbridge thing, the other thing people aren't talking about was the sheer number of candidates there. I mean, as ever, there's a load of independents, there's Calc Binface, all those sorts of things. And they're all picking up a few hundred but obviously the vote was lost by for Labour by 495. And everyone's saying, oh, it's all about you, Les. But the Green Party picked up 800 votes. So, you know, it's not as clear as that. And a, a general election would be a very different 
election. I think that's the thing the parties are all going to have to think about is, you know, as Will says, it's a is a massive chessboard. You've got all of the constituencies where you've got to consider where do we throw our resources. That's much harder to do and to think about where you can really do it. And and yeah, as we were discussing it, if the Conservatives are feeling vulnerable in loads of different ways, people all, you know, ever since 2019 have been talking about blue wall versus red wall, you know, different strategies that are needed to do. There's a lot of complexities that all the parties will have to unpick. Yeah, dangers of extrapolation. Someone was pointing out if, you know, if it's just been Uxbridge or just been Selby, uh, the story of the night would be very, very different. And given, as we know, with by-elections, what matters is the story, not the not the substance. Um, I'll just quickly, Kath, um, Ministerial reshuffle. Uh, mm-hmm. We've been expecting one for a while. Uh, has this made it more likely, less likely before summer? Well, I mean, <laughs> I, I have not looked at Twitter for the duration that we've been recording this uh, early-ish on Friday morning. But at the moment, uh, or the last I heard was that there wasn't a reshuffle on the cards today. Obviously, people have been talking about a government reshuffle all week. Um so whether or not that means that, you know, Monday, Tuesday, uh, Rishi Sunak still decides to do it, it's one of those interesting things, because if he'd lost all three, then you might say, even if it's not a reset moment, maybe it's a distraction moment to make the newspapers move on to different headlines. Um, so maybe there's an incentive to do it. There's a counter argument, which is actually if Rishi Sunak feels a little bit more stable because they they managed to retain Uxbridge, um, that maybe he can do it without having to worry about the fallout from a reshuffle because reshuffles are also about all the losers so they can piss off your party as much as they can please members of it. Um, but he does have issues to deal with. You know, there is a question mark about Ben Wallace's um, future as Defence Secretary and it, with the ongoing war in Ukraine, that isn't a question mark you can afford to leave, particularly as we know summer months can be a time of international crisis. So whether or not he decides he needs to get that sorted before um, August, uh, Parliament's already gone, but for the government that doesn't make so much of a difference. I don't know. Or whether he waits to try and have a reset moment in September heading off into the complexities of that, I don't know. Similarly for Labour, um, you know, they still haven't reshuffled the team in order to reflect the new departments. So we are expecting them to do a reshuffle at some point. And the IFG has argued that the sooner the better, because in theory, you want your shadows to be experts on the brief um, that they're A, going to be campaigning on in the election and B, might then take up in government if they do manage to get into government after the general election. Um, so obviously, from a good government point of view, we would prefer sooner. But again, Starmer will be thinking about the politics of all of that. Let's move on from the immediate drama of the by-elections and move to policy and government missions and pledges. Uh, where we are as the summer kicks in, uh, as Kath was just saying, and what Sunak and Starmer are trying to achieve. Will uh, Rishi Sunak has asked voters to judge him on five pledges. Do you think those are going to turn things around? Well, this is sort of the, the, the sort of big question. I mean, I think, you know, in some ways he identified a set of pledges or priorities. I'm not quite sure what, what they're being called now. And they're all actually really deep 
structural um, pledges. And is it one of these things, are they actually memorable to voters? They're memorable to someone who studies on a day-to-day basis. So, so, you know, we had a halving inflation. Well, that's actually a deep structural issue. And that's sort of rather, on one level, I think that was based on a sense in which it would, would go down. And inflation d- did seem, we had some good numbers out the other day that w- was positive. Small boats, you know, there, there's been a lot of symbolic politics around the policy, but actually not much pro- progress there. NHS waiting lists, you know, are going to be a, a really a, a huge kind of, it's like a kind of super tanker to turn around. So if you look at actually what, what he promised that kind of job, I think with was jobs, you know, kind of actually you know, we're in an extremely tough economic um, moment. So the the actual set of pledges were quite interesting because they were pledges on things that are really important. I think they're politically important, but actually, you know, many governments have tried and failed to sort of tackle those and dealing with them over a short time period when, you know, you know, I think we should make no bones about it, that it, it really is a tough economic period. The actual, you know, the issues around and cost of living, uh, then impacting on you know industrial action, which is then impacting on public services, and so I think it is it, for me. It's going to be a really tough period for the government to sort of navigate and to, to engineer some sort of a feel good factor as we get into twenty twenty four. It's not to say they can't do it, and I I think I keep reiterating to people that voters actually have quite short memories. That if you can sort of stimulate a little bit of you know spring summer good feeling, then actually that anti incumbent mood might dissipate somewhat but you know the, the pledges for me are, are not really doing it but I think that's because they chose things that as I say are really structural and really difficult to tackle. Uh, Charles will mention there some movement on inflation you know slightly slightly good news uh, this week time for the government yeah. and all of us to to cheer. I mean yeah although I've, I've now got the view slightly um, more pessimistic from the government's point of view than will but I think an event like last autumn is an event like 92 or the autumn of 2007 for Gordon Brown or maybe the winter of discontent. You know, one of those epical, the winds have changed. There's been a sea change in politics. Lots of watery metaphors. <laughs> Something watery has swept the conservative economic competence thing. Yeah. And the point is, you know, it is incredibly incredible how volatile the inflation thing is. If you're somebody who watches the financial markets a little bit, the, the effect of just two or three point ones of a percentage point difference in a monthly reading of the CPI and the underlying CPI inflation is enough for the FTSE stock market to go up by two or three hundred points for the future expectations of where interest rates are going to peak to move by like half a percentage point, which matters a huge amount. It's an incredibly volatile time because it's very murky. We've emerged from a period of almost zero interest rates for God knows how long to this extremely early 90s kind of feeling of when is it when is inflation going to get under control again so it's incredibly volatile so a small indication right now might mean inflation being totally different in about a year's time what i don't think is going to make a difference is that people are going to suddenly feel very good although there might be some real wage increases we we will have had a couple of years of the worst results for disposable income since the 50s and that's not going to suddenly get People aren't going to look at the small uptick in the chart, in my view, and go, oh, sunshine has returned. Hang on with the Tories because the, the sunny days are here. And also you've got the lagged effect of just how terrible public services are too. So I think, in a sense, there needs to be good economic news for Labour because they're the ones who have to carry the problem afterwards of making all the numbers add up and trying to fulfil some promises and providing some hope for people. We're no longer in a world where the Labour Party might be secretly hoping for some bad economic news so they can beat up Rishi Sunak. I think it's now about what state of the economy are they going to inherit and they need it to be a bad one. 
Yeah, I was going to ask you exactly that question, actually, in, in a minute about the kind of uh, Labour want to be able to hit the government, but also want a good economy. But just before we go there, Kath, I mean, five is the magic number because uh, Keir Starmer's got his uh, five missions as well. Uh, talk us through how they're different from Sunak's pledges and uh, the kind of risks and rewards around that. Well, um, I mean, there are obviously some key differences in the the nature of the focus, but also in how they're operating. So, I mean, the the you know, we've talked about pledges and priorities. For Starmer, they are missions. Uh, and the idea of mission-based government is that you are uh, orienting government around achieving these huge things. So they are slightly more longer term, more ambitious in that sense. But they also, the problems that he faces, they hit up against what Giles has just talked about, is do you have the money to be able to do them? And at the moment, a lot of the pressure on on Labour is how are you arguing you're going to be able to do all these these things just through reform? You know, you can't fix the NHS just through sort of making changes to how they operate. Every everything just costs money. Um and and so it ends up coming back to this question of are you going to be able to have the money to do some some big things? Because um what Starmer's trying to do is is say that there is ambition for the Labour Party, but he's also trying to do it whilst reassuring them that we are safe on the economy. We're not going to suddenly raise taxes or uh spend in unfunded ways. We are going to uh go out there and and be a sensible government. And it, you know, maybe it's one of these Twitterverse media storms, but there is a lot of pressure on them. And again, we've seen that this week in terms of uh, the two-child cap on welfare payments uh, and a lot of the backlash against that. And Labour are having a meeting this weekend, uh, going off to discuss their policies. Um, So we'll wait and see whether or not, you know, there's any shift in that approach. But it's still a long way out for the election. So all of this stuff could change. Yeah, you you mentioned the the two child cap row, Kath. Will do you think? I mean, a Labour positioning themselves. There's there are so many different things in the mix with all of this. I, I mean, is Starmer picking his way through in the in the right sort of way? Do you think? I mean, it's interesting as Kath said. There's a sort of this sort of the Twitter politics and sort of intra party debate and conflict around what Labour's positions are. Often, when you look at the national polling, you find that Starmer is sort of plotting a course very much through the median voter uh, and actually often through Labour voters. And I think that there is, you know, I think we we often forget that all political parties are broad coalitions, not necessarily ideologically um, coherent. And so Labour has, you know, a, a is sort of trying to piece back together. Um, clearly, the, the two-child policy is very controversial and has, you know, some, some very vocal um, uh, opponents and critics in the party, but actually when polled about, and I, and I think it's very important actually for parties not just to develop policy on the basis of polling because polls are often quite superficial even measures of public opinion let alone of how policies work but I think you know what what we're seeing is Labour Labour and Starmer taking a very risk averse approach to you know in the words of of Linton Crosby getting the barnacles off the boat and so on some levels we've seen a big controversy over that this week I wouldn't necessarily um, be expecting them to back down I think you know again signs of weakness actually I think could be quite um, detrimental to sort of Starmer at this point I think he really 
media sort of, you know, narrowing the focus. And, and as has been said, you know, we are operating in a different world, for example, to run up to 97, that, you know, actually the, the room for manoeuvre for any new government is going to be really tough. And we're not living through a period where, um, you know, as as under John Major, the, the kind of the Conservatives actually bequeathed Labour, actually a, an economy that was heading in a really quite a good direction that allowed a Labour government to do a lot of things. And so I think we should expect Labour to continue uh, on the sort of path it's on at the moment, which is really just trying to keep you know things very narrow. I mean, just, just one other thing to say is I think it's also very important not to draw wrong analogies from things like these by-elections. So I think the ULEZ um, mission, you know, the Conservatives could make a strategic error if they think that sort of pushing against net zero, climate change, the environment as a policy is going to be helpful and ramping up sort of cultural rhetoric in that sort of space. I, you know, I think there's, it is, it's is easy to think, oh, well, actually, if we just get the right wedge issue, that will help us. I think there, there's often a sense, there's often, again, thinking about Twitter not being Britain as a sort of our now favourite catchphrase, those sort of wedge politics often play most of those who observe and engage in political analysis and discourse the most, whereas actually your average voter, sort of child, you know, as was saying earlier, is worried about cost of living. That's the biggest factor for, you know, pretty much everyone. And, and that's why, you know, ULEZ as, a, as, a pot, as an issue came up was the cost of living, not really a sense of deep anti-environmentalism. And just quickly then, on back to Giles's Catch-22, it's a point our colleague Emma Norris also made in terms of whether, whether Starmer is more worried about not having the ammunition to uh, attack the government or having a really difficult um, uh, start to his time in government. I mean, one to all of you, really, but kick, kick us off, Will, just, just quickly. I mean, if you were Starmer, what would you be more worried about? I mean, it, it's it's an interesting observation, isn't it? I mean, you know, on one level, you need you need a substantial majority to be able to govern through quite a difficult period. And again, I think we've we just take it for granted. Oh, you know, kind of parties can keep parliamentary rebellions to a, a minimum, you know. But actually, things like, for example, the the, the two child child policy um could actually be you know really problematic if you have a small majority. So on that level, you think. I, I sort of see the paradox of, well, actually, you want things to be getting better, but as things get better, the conservative chances uh, increase, the likelihood of a huge majority falls. So you end up sort of having this sort of strange trade, this sort of trade off. I'm having thought of a sort of economic model of what the optimal amount of, you know, is. But, you know, I, I think ultimately what, what Labour have to be focusing on is their offer to the electorate. I think that is where um, they still have work to do, which is actually, there's clearly an anti incumbent sentiment out there people are really you know kind of very unhappy with the economic situation the that sort of period that we had last autumn around the kind of management of the economy really has left a left a mark but people are you know voters don't seem to be completely enthused about labor and starmer although as I, I do keep pointing out to people he still is actually has the highest approval ratings of any national po- uh, politician in terms of when you have favorability ratings by pollsters or approval ratings they're not great compared to historical uh, norms but i think people are just more negative these days but he's still out polling pretty much everyone and so you know he's not a hugely popular politician but he's you know as Boris Johnson was in 2019 he's still more popular than the rest. For me I mean you know we've already talked about Starmer and Labour facing this this tension about invest first you know or not wanting to show that they're fiscally irresponsible and yet at the same time wanting to make all these changes wanting to to do some big ambitious reform. Um, and as Giles said, you know, in some ways, if the economy improves a little bit, but not a lot, that could be more troublesome because you start to think, well, to the public, it looks like maybe there will be some money to spend. 
but where are you going to spend it and how ambitious are you going to be? And, you know, if you at the moment, they're not turning the tap on at all. But if you slightly turn the tap on where you turn it on, that becomes a bit of another water metaphor. <laughs> but I, I do think, you know, we are still a long way out of, from an election. There is you don't normally see um, a party's real manifesto policies at this stage in the campaign. Um, it is going to be a long campaign all of next year. Obviously, there'll be pressure on Rishi Sunak. Does he go early? Mostly um, when governments are in trouble, they tend to sort of push the election for as long as possible. So I still think autumn next year is the most likely. For me, the really sort of troubling thing is just what does this mean for government? Because an election is a massive distraction anyway. We've already heard talk about MPs are really focused on their constituencies and Conservative MPs worried about holding on to their seats. Uh, ministers, that will be the same thing. But even if if the Conservative Party starts to get into its head that it's just going to lose and that's inevitable, how does that distract You know, How much do uh, ministers start thinking, well, it's just about my legacy? Or you know, the worst case, like, do they start thinking, well, let's not bother with these things because if Labour are going to be in anyway, let's just leave them to to mop it all up. Or even worse, let's leave them some nasty stuff to have to deal with uh, so that we can have a better time in opposition. And that means that you just end up with a, a government of drift for the next year. And I think that's really troubling. So I want to know from, from Rishi Sunak's point of view, he's already talked about his ambition of we can go hard at this, we can still do you know, well at the election, can't you join me, uh, that sort of message. But is there also a vision there of like, you know, public service, it matters to me, we can do the right things for the country and there's lots of thorny stuff that we need to be dealing with uh, because we believe in good government or are they just going to go hell for leather for the election and the best ways to try and convince the electorate? So just for the last few minutes, let's let's dig into that and think a bit more about the immediate um, future and the summer. Um, MPs have headed off on their long holidays, um, sorry, back to their constituencies for um, summer of tireless work uh, on behalf of uh, their uh, electorate. Um, Giles, picking up on Kath's points uh, a moment ago about the kind of the, what it means for government, how do you how do you see government playing out over the summer and can Sunak use this period of possible, you know, possibly slightly uh, quieter um, politics uh, to his advantage? Uh, I think he's actually one of those people who does have a bit of a national interest in mind. He's I'm not sure what his private expectations are of the next election, but you must know it's highly realistic he ends up being prime minister for two years at, at tops. And I think he'll want to know that he tried to do some of the right things. Um, I think if they, if he really wanted to leave some sort of sabotage behind, he would be making much more positive noises towards tax cuts, because that's the real way to sabotage everything, is to insert lots of tax cuts into the future system, which is why we're basically in a, in a much more difficult fiscal situation. Instead, I mean, we saw Rishi Sunak's colours, where he raised corporate tax in 2021, in order to fund the extra money that was needed for public services. It's not because he loves it. It's just because I think he's quite responsible in that way. And I think he's chosen a chancellor who feels similarly. And um, he has found himself up against a guilt market that gives them very little choice anyway. So I think even if they did want to do a kind of irresponsible Johnsonian or mega irresponsible Trussian style, um, you know, dash for popularity with some kind of package of tax cuts, it would immediately just generate headlines about mortgage rates and they'd be sort of whipped back. So 
I think they're going to try to carry on with their positive program. There's some stuff they really believe in. I think he's a real uh, technophile. He loves the idea of generating a a world-leading policy on artificial intelligence. I think the the Treasury itself, under Jeremy Hunt, but actually through a gradual period of evolution, has become much more of a sort of a proactive... Um, it, it, more industrial strategy kind of place that will be choosing some sorts of sectors and getting on the front foot. So there's going to be sort of useful sort of agenda and most of them won't matter to voters. And I think the correct thing to do is fatalistically accept that that's the way it is and sometimes you've just got to do the right thing. Yeah. Will, is, is good government good politics? Uh, well, I mean, I think in the current moment, I think it sort of has to be in the sense that I think, you know, I, I was going to present some some of these sort of cultural war state politics and sort of symbolic politics as being very much like a sugar rush. And I think actually probably what the government's finding is it's getting a lot of sugar sugar rush from some of the sort of high profile, um, you know, politics, anti-woke politics, whatever. But actually, you know, voters, you know, behave around the fundamentals, you know, cost of living. And I think Sunak knows that. And actually, it's worth remembering, as Giles was saying, actually, you know, he lost the, the leadership contest the first time to Liz Truss because he wouldn't just tell the membership what they wanted to hear, actually. That sort of responsible style, he would, he, his style of presenting in those hustings and so forth was to say, look, things are really tough. And, and so I don't think we should expect a big change there. And, and I do think it wouldn't really be helpful, even setting aside guilt markets actually to the government if they were being seen to be you know kind of really irresponsible in terms of what they're having doing and partly that is because of the severity of the crisis we we face and actually i think the one tension i think between good good government and politics is this sort of ongoing demand for particular you know Charles talking about industrial strategy, someone who works in the higher education sector is pretty sensitive to this. There is still demands for particular sorts of policies that cutting against arguably um, that push to be a sort of world leading global R&D um, superpower, you know, kind of higher education is a real growth export industry. There is still the cultural dimensions, we like to call it, and political science of politics is still pushing against that a little bit. And that that is a tension for him. I think it's probably not one that he's particularly personally enjoys the politics of, but that is still, you know, a big factor in the Conservative Party of 2023 compared to actually the Conservative Party of yesteryear. Kath, um, party conferences end of September, beginning of October. We now know the date of the King's speech, 7th of November. There are a few set-piece things coming up for the Prime Minister. How should he use them? Uh, There are. I mean, well, the first thing that they've got to navigate is the sheer timetable of it all because MPs return on the 4th of September. They then break again on the 16th of September and then, yeah, King's Speech. So you'll prorogue Parliament and then come back for a King's Speech. And that means the end of one parliamentary session, the start of a new. But there's still quite a lot of legislation to get through, including the online safety bill and a load of stuff. Again, everything's just got tied up in the House of Lords because of the way in which the government sequenced a lot of stuff this this session. So, and uh, our colleague Alice Lilly keeps reminding that there's already a load of stuff that's been carried over to this parliamentary session and you can't carry over again. So uh, there is going to be a challenge to get through some of that stuff or end up dropping it and having to reintroduce it. Um, so I think there's getting through that. The, for, for me, the big question about the King's speech, I completely take all of Giles's points, but I still think there's going to be a challenge of how you're making it look and on various issues. If, you know, if Rishi Sunak looks like he's just delivering stuff uh, ambitiously trying to get loads of stuff through 
in the next year. There'll be yet more question marks, as with the five pledges, about the ability to deliver it. Um, but if it's not ambitious enough, then it risks looking like, you know, there's there's no governing going on. So you've got to get that balance right with the King's speech of, of looking like you have got um, a vision for government. You know, what is Rishi Sunak's approach thus far? Again, as Giles says, quite responsibly, has been fixing the problems of his predecessors. But what is the vision beyond that? What is the sort of Rishi Sunak, if you give me a fifth term, this is the kind of prime minister I'll be. This is what I want to do for the country. And I think those moments will be a chance for him to start thinking about that and setting it out. Um, so we'll wait and see whether or not he, he takes that chance. Right, let's wrap it up with a quick fire question to all of you. Date of the next general election, Giles. Uh, October 2024. Kev? October 2024. <laughs> oh, we'll say something different. <laughs> well, well, October, November, but possibly January 25. No way. Oh, that's so desperate. Uh, Christmas <laughs> campaign, great. There we go. Well, uh, a wintry uh, end to this beginning of summer podcast. So that's it for today. Uh, and it's uh, been a fun one for those of us who can't get enough of by-elections. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify, and all major platforms. So please take inspiration from the many thousands turning out in Selby, Uxbridge, and Somerton, and get out there and vote for our podcast with a nice review. We've also got some great podcasts coming up, exploring what MPs actually get up to during recess and what the right time is to call a by-election, all very topical. And over the summer, we'll be putting out a brilliant six-part series which reveals what it takes to be a minister. And we'll be back in September when MPs return, including three fresh-faced new parliamentarians. Have a great summer, everybody. And if you stayed up too late or got up too early, then here's to a relaxing weekend.